Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. this morning is from Proverbs 20, verse 10. Diverse weights and diverse measures, they are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Diverse weights and measures refer to the different weights by which shyster merchants would take advantage of those they dealt with. They would have one weight for buying and one weight for sale, selling. So if they were buying something, they would use their lighter weight. And if they were selling something, they would use their, I don't know if I got that backwards. But anyway, you get the idea. They're, they're, they're taking advantage of the person that they're dealing with. One is reminded of the Norman Rockwell painting with the little old lady and the grocer weighing the chicken. And each of them have surreptitiously placed a finger on the scale. His was pushing up. His was pushing down to make it heavier, and hers was pushing up to make it lighter, and they were both trying to hedge their prices. And this is a literal rendition of this kind of abuse. Now, while that painting is iconic and even cutesy, the problem is real. My family invested in a large truck scale for their farm, so that every load of feed or product that comes on the farm is, is weighed, and there's an accountability that that provides to various um, merchants. Even by conservative measures, that scale has paid for itself many times over in providing accountability to the merchants. 500 pounds of corn here, a ton of hay there, even whole truckloads that were supposed to have been delivered and were built, but were not accounted for. It all adds up pretty fast. But and, and weights and measures are one way to defraud your neighbor. But in our day, there are many ways to defraud your neighbor. However, the principle remains the same. False advertising, lying, failure to disclose information in a business deal, hidden fees, fraud, embezzlement, or stealing time from an employer. All of these are real theft, and they are all further examples of this issue. Our God is a God of righteousness and truth. And wisdom in his world means integrity. This proverb tells us that God hates dishonesty and theft. In fact, even the means by which dishonesty and theft are committed are an abomination to him. And we are not to be like that. Instead, we are to live by faith. And this is what we are to be like. Luke 6, verses 30 and 38. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so if we're willing and able, please kneel as we confess our sins.
the story of God's revelation of his Christ. The promised, anointed Messiah who was coming to set all things straight. At Christmas, in the incarnation, God became man. He took on human form. And he came for a very specific purpose. He came to establish a new thing in the world. His kingdom. That was what Jesus came to do. The obvious focus of the Gospels is on Jesus Christ. Who he is. And what he does for men. The whole way through the Gospels, God is revealing what his kingdom is like. And the whole way through the Gospels, men are taken aback. They are aghast. They are blown away. And they are either offended or they have hope. But even when, the, when men get a glimpse of the future, as when John proclaims that he who comes after me is greater than me, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Or when Peter professes that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah. Even when men speak the truth in the Gospels, their eyes are still clouded. John later sends some of his disciples to inquire whether Jesus really is the Christ. Then Peter later denies that he even knows Jesus three times. Even after the resurrection, the disciples needed their eyes open to what the scriptures said about the Messiah. They had lived with him. They had walked with them. And he had taught them about the world and about life. But they still needed further revelation. The point is that all through the Gospels, we are particularly seeing what Luke tells us in the beginning of Acts. We are seeing an account of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Jesus is the truth and the light and the way. And he is communicating what his father wants to communicate. He is God's word. But the focus of the book of Acts is on his continuing work. And in particular on what he does in and through the apostles. Thus the focus of Acts is on men and their service to Christ. The book of Acts is about the witness of men to Christ and for him, in his stead. Now there are some discrepancies between the end of the Gospel of Luke and the beginning of Acts. At the end of Luke we read this. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. But as we start the book of Acts, we read that after the ascension, the disciples returned to the upper room. They didn't go to the temple. And they stayed there until the Holy Spirit was given. In fact, in the book of Acts, we don't see the, the disciples continually in the temple praising and blessing God until the end of chapter 2, after the coming of the Holy Spirit and Peter's powerful sermon, chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So if the gospel is about God's work, and the Acts is about men working for God, then we need to know how ordinary, if you can call the disciples or the gospels or the apostles ordinary, at least or at least how simple fishermen and a tax gatherer can go from following Christ to leading the church. Becoming men who have clouded vision to men who have vision and who have leadership. Chapters 1 and 2 of Acts tell that story. How they are transitioned from the gospel, the revelation of Christ, in person, to the gospel, the revelation of Christ, through his people. Chapters 1 and 2 of Acts tell that story. Today's text is a segue into the rest of the book. In this chapter, Luke is showing us how Christ's disciples were redeemed from the scattering which occurred at the crucifixion and given the confidence necessary to obey the command given to them in the Great Commission. And the first thing they needed to have restored was their confidence in Jesus Christ. And we read about that starting in Acts 1, verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This passage restores the apostles' confidence in Jesus Christ by his presence. Jesus' public ministry lasted for three to five years, depending on how you do your math, etc. But his disciples followed him. They walked with him. They talked with him. They ate and slept and they worked with him. They, they obeyed his commands. They sat under his teaching. They saw his miracles. And the Eastern concept of teacher is very different than what we tend to think of when we think of teacher. They called him rabbi, teacher, master. When we think about teachers, we think about a classroom, about desks and chairs and a, a school, maybe computers or a, a subjects. You get the idea. But the Eastern concept of a teacher is more like what we think of when we think of a, a guru, or a sensei, or a master. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And his disciples weren't following him around to learn a specific subject, or even a whole bunch of different subjects. They were learning how to live from him. He was teaching them the art of living, the art of life. These men were living with him, and the central message of his life was that God was establishing a new thing in their midst, a kingdom. The kingdom of God was now here among us, among men, and it changes how we live. Which is why the last question they asked him before he was ascended was, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, we talked about the narrowness of their vision last week. But let's put that aside for now. And recognize that they were looking to Jesus for leadership and for guidance. His presence was a tremendous bolster to his disciples' confidence. Forty days earlier, he had died. And they had scattered. But his resurrection... 
And their witness of his physical presence gave them boldness. And next we see that he restores his disciples' confidence in himself by his words. Verses 7 and 8. And he said to him, that said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. In one sense, his words are quite alarming. Jesus starts with a warning to them to mind their own business. It is not for you to know times or seasons. And he ends with a seemingly impossible prophecy that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, where he had recently been crucified, but then to the ends of the earth. And here he's talking to a group of fishermen from Galilee. Galilee. But in between, he gives them a remarkable promise. He reminds them of the promise he has given them before. And that is that they will receive power when they receive the Holy Spirit. And his words are cause for hope and confidence. The next source for confidence in Jesus Christ is the miracle of the ascension. Verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Let's face it. We believe some pretty weird stuff sometimes. People just don't float up into the sky on a regular basis. That's not what happens. They don't come back from the dead either. And they don't command the wind and the waves. And they don't walk on water unless they're Jesus. Now this wasn't some sort of party trick. Jesus wasn't playing a joke on them. Jesus had just promised them power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And now he was demonstrating that it was his power to give. At the resurrection, God the Father gave Jesus all authority in heaven and earth. Authority over gravity. God enthroned him for all eternity and placed him at the head of all things. So that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the crucifixion, Jesus' suffering was complete. He said, it is finished, and it was finished. He took all our punishment and our burden and our pain, and he bore them on the cross. But now he is exalted. Now he is lifted up. Now he is glorified. And now we are his witnesses. Jesus had told the disciples that it was necessary for him to leave. And it was better for the disciples because then he could send his spirit. But the disciples were still a little taken aback. And they still need more, one more prod toward confidence in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he gives them. He gives them the witness of the angels. Verses 10 and 11. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? 
This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Two strangers address them, and with authority proclaim Jesus Christ's lasting power, that they may have faith in his words and that they may obey his commands. When he was taken away from them at the crucifixion, he was nailed to a tree and he died and buried in the ground and was and he was buried in the ground. They had no reason to expect him to come back, other than his prophecy and the and the, and the scriptures. But he does come back and he restores his their confidence in him. But this time when he's taken away from them, they don't know what's gonna happen. They're staring up into heaven. What's going on? What do we do now? What do we do now? And Jesus tells them. He sends two angels and they say, don't stare up into heaven. Jesus has power. And he will have power. And he will come back the same way he went away. And because of that, you need to obey. In Hebrews, well, the reason that Jesus left the disciples was so that they could have faith in his words and obey his commands. And really, this is the essence of faith. And and faith is the essence of what being a Christian is all about. In Hebrews 11, we read that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The problem with what the disciples had before the ascension is that they saw Jesus. He was with them. Their faith was sight. It didn't. It wasn't faith. It's just they had him. He was right there, which really isn't a problem. Think about that. If you had the opportunity to be in the presence of the person Jesus Christ, what what a glorious thing! And it's not a problem really, but it limited his ability to work through them. And this is evident in what we read about the promise of the Holy Spirit in John 14, verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And again in John 16, verses 12 and 13. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. And he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So what we see is that in order for Christ to accomplish his ends, and for the disciples to be, even, to, to be able to receive the spirit of truth, in order for them to be able to get it, to understand what it's all about, he needed to go away. But in a way that they were still looking to him and for him in faith. Albeit in a somewhat bewildered and befuddled way, which is exactly what happens. The first thing that happens is simple obedience to Jesus' command. The disciples return to Jerusalem and wait. Verses 12 to 13. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. So, Jesus has gone. The angel 
angels come and say, why are you just staring into heaven? And so they, they recognized the, the validity of that. Jesus had told them to do something, so they did it. They went back to Jerusalem. They obeyed. They did it because they believed that he had power, and they believed that they needed to obey his word. The next thing that happens is we get a list of the 11 apostles, the men who were called together by Jesus, who were handpicked by him to be his preeminent disciples, and who followed him as members of his most intimate group. This book is entitled The Acts of the Apostles, and this list is the list of the principal players at the beginning of the church. Continuing in verse 13. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now, we are not privy to the details of all the apostles' lives. And many we know little enough about. But we do know that Peter and James and John were part of the inner circle, very close to Christ. They were there when he went to pray. They were there at the transfiguration. They were the ones that were allowed to come and see some of his his greater miracles. We know that Peter was rash and impetuous at times. He was also the brother of Andrew. We also know that James and John were brothers and that all four of these disciples were fishermen from Galilee. We also know that Philip and Bartholomew were close. Bartholomew is also known as as Nathaniel. And he's the one who brought Philip to meet the Lord when they were called to the apostles. Matthew is also called Levi and he was a tax collector. Thomas doubted until he saw the risen Lord in person. But later, he took the gospel as far as India. We don't know much about James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, or Judas, the son of James. What we do know is that these 11 men are the original apostles, who Jesus sent out to establish his church, and contrary to being dispersed, as they had been when Jesus left them at the crucifixion, we read in verse 14, that these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So at the crucifixion, they were dispersed. At the ascension, they're drawn together. They returned to the upper room with a newfound confidence in community. Their faith in Jesus gave them a common Bond. The words with one accord are the essence of community. The calm from is the Latin word for with, and unity is the Latin word or, or for oneness. So with one accord, with oneness, they were in a community. Their relationship with Jesus fed their relationships with one another. So that with one accord they prayed and besought the Lord's will. They stayed in the presence of his closest friends and family. And in this time of confusion and bewilderment, they must have all been wondering, what next? Jesus said that power was coming. What's that going to look like? Never in a million years or could they have imagined what was about to happen. In this time of confusion and bewilderment, they found solace in fellowship and in peace. 
Jesus had told them that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria, Judea, and to the end of the earth. But they had to start at home. The gospel flows out, but it has to take root before it can. During those, before it can grow. It has been this way since the beginning of the church. And I'm certain that in the upper room, during those ten days, while they were waiting for the Holy Spirit, the disciples were sharing stories of the Lord's work and the Lord's life. The messages that he brought to them in his ministry and after his resurrection. Remembering his words, witnessing him to each other and living in community as a result. Waiting for the power that he promised. And while that community and fellowship were vital to their witness and lives, they were not wishy-washy in it. It wasn't something that they were moved by the Spirit and they were just kind of floundering or flopping all around. Their faith was based on verifiable and solid truth. The apostles and the disciples were Hebrews, and they were well-versed in the Scriptures. And so while they were talking about Jesus, I am certain that they were talking about how he fulfilled the Scriptures. Because that's what every time we see Jesus... After the resurrection, he's talking about how he has fulfilled the scriptures. He's walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, going from Moses all the way through the the Old Testament, showing them how these things had to come to pass. And his life was a fulfillment of the Messiah's work. And so we see that their confidence in scripture was displayed in a couple of different ways. First, we see their confidence in the fulfillment of of the Psalms in verses 15 to 20. And starting at verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. And said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part. In this ministry. Psalm 41 verse 9 reads. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted. Who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Continuing on verses 18 and 19 are a parenthesis. Regarding what had happened to Judas Iscariot. And this is Luke informing Theophilus. Luke was a Gentile believer, and so this was all common knowledge in Jerusalem, and he had heard it from the the apostles about what what had happened there. But he's telling, he's explaining what's going on here to Theophilus, his his Gentile reader. So Luke is, is informing Theophilus of the circumstances that Peter's talking about, verses 18 and 19. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field that field is called in their own language, Akhaldah, that is, field of blood. So now a little parenthesis for me, for you. There's a bit of at least a seeming incongruity between this accounting of Judas' death and that we find in Matthew 27, where Matthew tells us that Judas hanged himself and the priests 
purchase the field with the blood money? And the best answer to this seeming incongruity is that Judas did hang himself, but he hung himself on the Passover evening. Remember, Jesus was crucified on the Passover evening, and Judas immediately went out and, and in his regret and hung himself. Well, on the Sabbath, nobody was willing to defile themselves to take the body down. And it was the beginning of the Passover, which was a week of Sabbaths. And Judas' body hung, and it swelled up, and it eventually fell down, and it burst open, and his guts spilled out on the field. And the field was purchased in his name by the priests. The priests did purchase the field because it was defiled. They needed a place to bury the strangers in, in, in Israel, which is their justification for buying the field. But they did it in his name. They used his money because they couldn't use that money without defiling themselves or the temple treasury. So they, he'd thrown the money back at them. And they said, what can we do? We can't use this. We can't associate with this. So we'll just tack Judas' name on it. And it had become a commonplace in Jerusalem. Imagine a body hanging outside of Jerusalem for a week. And all the Israelites are in town for the Passover. And the crucifixion is going on. And the stories are going on. And then Jesus is resurrected from the dead in the middle of this. And there's stories going all through Jerusalem. There's, this is a, a very vibrant culture. So the, 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 the different accountings can be accounted for. Back to Peter and the fulfillment of the scriptures. Verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. And let another take his office. So their confidence in scripture was that it spoke to them. The, 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 the Psalms are about the Messiah. And if the Psalms are about the Messiah, then the people surrounding the Messiah in the Psalms are about the people surrounding the Christ in their life. They recognize that Judas was the one who was cursed. And they recognize that they had a calling to fulfill the prophecy in, in Psalms. Let another take his office. So next we see their confidence in the scriptures and that they go about in obedience, fulfilling the command just cited. Let another take his office. So they show their confidence in their obedience. Verses 21 through 25. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us, all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take a part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. So they're fulfilling the scriptures in their obedience to them. And finally, we see their faith by how they follow biblical precedent. Verse 26. And they cast their lots, and Lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. They cast lots to, to determine the decision. In the Old Testament... The scapegoat was chosen by casting lots. 
Also, the land was divided by casting lots. Proverbs tells us that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The decision to use lots prayerfully and by faith was wise and showed great confidence in the scriptures for prescribing the means by which they were to know the Lord's will. So what does all this mean for us? What knowledge can we glean from this text? And what application is there in it for us? Well, first, this is a great story. And it is part of the gospel. It is part of our story. It is our heritage. And we need to know it and love it and own it. We need to claim it for ourselves. Our Lord Jesus ascended into heaven. Our patriarchs, the apostles, were there. And they witnessed it for us firsthand. Then they obeyed Jesus' command and waited in Jerusalem together, praying and fellowshipping together. And then they selected Matthias according to the scriptures. And we have a faithful rendition of this story here in Luke's book of Acts. It's ours. It's for the church. The birth of the church and the transition of ordinary men into the leaders of the church were based on a tremendous confidence. The Lord was shoring up the apostles' faith in himself, in each other, and in his word. And there was one big missing ingredient, of course, and that is what they are waiting for. And that is power. The Holy Spirit. But more on that next week. For now, we need that same confidence that the apostles had. That complete assurance that if we want that confidence, that complete assurance, if we will be successful in our witness of Jesus Christ, we need that confidence in Him. First, we must be confident in the Scriptures because Jesus fulfills the Scriptures. We are not to be wishy-washy in our faith. We are to be grounded on God's Word. We are to be planted in the Gospel, in the Bible, in the, the message of the Old Testament Scriptures, the message of a coming Savior and a redemption from our sin and from our fall in Adam. We need to be confident in the Scriptures because Jesus fulfills them. Jesus doesn't abolish the law. He establishes it. God's Word is faithful and true, and Jesus is God's Word embodied, enfleshed. He's God's Word in the flesh. The Word became flesh. If we want to be bold for Jesus, if we want confidence in our Lord, we must embrace God's Word and be witness of it and its power. Second, we must be confident in community. Because Jesus unites us to each other. The fulfillment of the law, the law enfleshed, is love. And love demands a beloved. We are to be lovers, not loners. God calls us to be a part of a body, the church. We are supposed to live in community, and we must be brazen and bold in our love for each other in this community. 
So that means we need to see when our brother or our sister is hurting. And we need to comfort them. We need to love them. We need to see when our brother or sister is doubting. And we need to strengthen them and encourage them. We need to reach out to our neighbors and love them. This community has to be a sweet fellowship. God calls us to be with one accord. And that means we need to work because we are diverse. It's not natural for us to get along. It's supernatural. Third, we must be confident in our Lord Jesus Christ, the supernatural. We are Christians. We bear his name. And we are his witnesses. We belong to him and he has purchased us. He has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. He is reigning in heaven and he will reign till the end of all ages. Be bold in your faith. Be strong in your witness. And take courage in your life knowing that Jesus holds you in his loving hands. And you cannot fall as long as you are his. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. to open by reading Exodus chapter 13 verse 3 and Moses said to the people remember this day in which you went out of Egypt out of the house of bondage for by strength of the hand of the Lord brought you out of this place many times throughout scripture we are commanded to remember and not forget the things of God his mighty hand which has saved us here in Exodus, God's people are called to remember their deliverance out of captivity in Egypt. Scripture also commands us not to forget the law of God. First, in Proverbs 3, it says, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands, for length of days and long life and peace will be added to you. Sometime in the past couple weeks, uh, Yvonne, while reflecting on the many blessings experienced by your young congregation, mentioned that we ought to have some means to recollect and recall the hand of God as he has worked in our congregation in his early years. Mary's recovery from cancer, freedom from custody struggles, Pastor Evans and now Pastor DeWinkle and his family, the faithful pulpit supply throughout the, the week months, our many births, our baptisms, the weddings, and Truman's life has been spared. The list goes on. Throughout scripture, memory is never just an intellectual or an academic issue, but always an ethical issue. It's a matter of faithfulness to Yahweh, our God. Over and over, Moses exhorts Israel in Deuteronomy to remember that Yahweh did for them in Egypt. And this remembrance motivates their actions in the presence. Knowing that Yahweh has barred his hand for, for them in Egypt, they have no reason for fear entering the land which is prepared for them as they fight against the Canaanites. If recollection is a duty, then forgetting, on the other hand, is a sin. As Doug Wilson often emphasizes, forgetting is not an excuse for failing to do all we should do. It itself is an additional sin. Not obeying the Father's commandments is a sin. 
and leads off the path of wisdom. But not obeying is often preceded by original sin, the sin of forgiving in the first place. Christ addressed our need to uh, recollect and recall when he initiated the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians, Christ, we spoke, he said, Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, this is, this is from Paul, 1 Corinthians. The Lord Jesus, on the night which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do his offerings to drink it in remembrance of me. For as the offerings to eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Recalling and remembering the goodness of God ought to produce in us hearts of thanksgiving and of joy. This table that's set before us is a table of grace. And when we eat by faith, we are, over, we are to overflow in thanks and praise. And it's to this table we invite all who have been baptized and are living under the authority of Christ, his body, which is the church. When we eat and drink the bread and wine together, we are acknowledging that we are sinners. We are without hope except for the sovereign mercy of God and that we are trusting Christ alone for our salvation. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.